1: We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show. And I am so excited to have my next guest here. We have Roxanne Petraeus, who is the co founder and CEO of Athena. And if you are not familiar with Athena, perhaps you need to listen very, very closely because Athena is such an amazing company and what they've done for compliance has made it not only much more interesting and doable, but also much more relevant than anything in today's day and age. So, Like I said, it all has to do with compliance. It's a compliance training platform with intuitive and powerful admin tools built to make training easy, engaging, and effective. And after graduating from Harvard's Reserve Officer Training Program, Roxanne was commissioned into the U.S. Army, where she served on a combat deployment to Afghanistan and in training missions to Cambodia and Mongolia. After leaving the military service, she worked at McKinsey & Company, and then she decided to go into the startup world and go and do this amazing, amazing company called Athena. So I can't wait to hear more about her very, very interesting journey to entrepreneurial life and about co-founding and scaling Athena. So welcome, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to get into this a little bit more, but let's start at the beginning. Would you share with us how how would you describe Athena to people who are not familiar with it?
0: Yeah. uh, I think thankfully most people are familiar with compliance training. And so usually I kind of ask, like, have you ever had to take mandatory training, harassment prevention, code of conduct, whatever? And usually people's eyes kind of glaze over um, and they say like, yeah, it was terrible. It was boring. Sometimes they have stories that are kind of similar to if you've ever seen the offices episode about, I think, DEI training where it's Mm -hmm. like actually just kind of – like uh, a whole HR issue in and of itself. The training is that bad. They, they'll tell me a story about, oh yeah, we have this lawyer come in and ask everybody to like share a time they've been harassed. and actually that was like a really kind of like ham-fisted way to do something and everyone got uncomfortable and it's like, yep, so we tackle that same problem, but um, we asked the design question, how would you design training if you intended it to actually work instead of just check a legal box? And then built it out from there. So we made it about education instead of just, quote, you know, training. We do digestible, so short bits over time. Um, We bring in great artists to do graphic novels and podcasts because the topics that our training addresses are inherently interesting. It's the stuff that, you know, hits the New York Times. But um, historically, it's just been treated like such a check-the-box perfunctory activity that the training itself is really doing a disservice to employees trying to actually build an inclusive and ethical workplace.
1: Very, very interesting and definitely needed, especially in today 's day and age so let 's back up a little bit. Uh, you were in the military in combat, yeah. which still to this day is probably not as common uh, for people for especially for women uh, yeah. to go in. Uh, what made you decide to join the u s army
0: yeah. I have a, a newsletter called a people person and I'm actually writing about this. Um, what made me join was very simple, which is I got into Harvard and didn't have the money to pay for it. And so I needed a scholarship. And so problem meets solution. What caused me to stay in the military was very different, um, which is like, I really liked the people. I liked the mission. I liked the camaraderie. I liked um, being surrounded by really great leaders and having this challenge that I figured if I could essentially make it in the army, I could kind of tackle just about anything else. But yeah, I mean, the initial like reason I joined was a rather common one, which is I needed money and they had a great scholarship.
1: So when you think back on those combat dates, obviously you were in Afghanistan. Are there a lot of similarities between being in combat versus like starting a company? I mean, where you're putting a team together, motivating yeah. a team, you know, directing people, what are the big similarities that you saw yeah. or that you see today?
0: Yeah. I think obviously like, you know, the stakes are different. And, um, so when I write here, since they like, I'm a wartime CEO, I'm kind of like, are you Yeah. Um, just because it's like, um, you know, thankfully like what we do here is not, um, life and death, but it's still really important. It's people spend the majority of their lives at work. Like it's really important that they have a place that they, you know, uh, feel empowered and can do their best work. And, um, and I want to build a really great company and that's incredibly um, hard, but I always want to be clear that like, you know, the, the stakes are different. But I think um, a lot of what I learned is like super applicable to what I do as a CEO. I'm sure like this will resonate um, for you because you do the same thing. For example, like staying calm in a crisis. Like, mm-hmm. I think of the best officers I served with and the best soldiers when the temperature turned up because like something went wrong because something got scary. They kind of turned the temperature down and like, okay, deep breath. And like, what are we going to do versus kind of that more, like panicky i'm just flailing and i'm just gonna yell more something else i think about is empowered leadership so i would and like really trusting kind of the lieutenants the the people below mm-hmm. you so I remember seeing really great officers who may be in some sort of like war room type um thing like command command center um if one of their um units was in some sort of a firefight or something was was going wrong they were never the type of commander who would be like give me an update how about now how's it going how's it going because it's just like look man I'll tell you know, like, um, I'm trying to, you know, just kind of like, uh, get through this. And if
1: leadership, how often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app. No matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor, as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, To subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year.
0: If is consistently kind of micromanaging. It um, at best has no impact, it doesn't help. And at worst, it can be incredibly distracting, it can be frustrating. And so I think a lot about that when I think of, you know, wanting to maybe check in on um, something, but recognizing like, you know what, if I can't um, help the situation right now, I'm just going to give everybody some space and, um, you know, trust that my team can figure uh, figure this out and that they'll call me if they need me instead of me being like that really annoying voice in their heads
1: when they don't, um, when they don't need it. So did you always know that you wanted to start a company? Um,
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think um, it's funny, like when I think back, you know, I always had little hustles going in school. Like I would sell um, magnets when, you know, printers came out and I would like print out little cartoony things and stick them to the desk and had a little virality going, I'm selling them to my friends until the teacher found out. So like I always had little entrepreneurial like ventures going But I think by the time I got to college, I think I probably did what a lot of women do, which is just look at who ran companies and like men ran companies, men started companies was like at Harvard when Facebook was taking off. Um, and again, I just didn't look like that. I wasn't a coder. I, um, didn't wear a hoodie. Like I wasn't a dude. And so I think I just sort of assumed that I would be like in business, but not running a business. Um, for no reason other than I just hadn't seen a lot of like women, um, who had started their own companies. And so I just never really thought of it as like a door that was open to me.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So how did Athena actually, like, how did you take the leap to go and do this? I mean, where did you get the ideas? You're at McKinsey, yeah. um, you're learning lots, but what was sort of the moment when you said, okay, I'm going to go and do this?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I had certainly thought about training a lot. I was in the army. We do a lot of training there. Um, I did foreign military training. So I trained militaries in Cambodia and Mongolia. Then I was at uh, McKinsey and was taking like their kind of annual risk training. It's their annual compliance training. And I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. I assumed that bad check the box training was just something the government did because the Mm -hmm. government does a lot of things that don't always, uh, they aren't always the most efficient. I was like, huh that's like really interesting that this is happening here. And it was happening around the time that McKinsey was um, in the press a lot for um, conflicts of interest and kind of other like reputational risk things. So I thought like, man, that's really strange that something that's kind of a big problem for this organization is um, being treated with training that is not very effective. Like I didn't walk out of that training being like, now I know how to identify a conflict of interest and I know exactly what to do. I, you know, instead was on my phone the whole time and clicked an X whenever I could. Um, and then I thought about me too, and how that had really changed how we think about the costs of, um, sexual harassment at companies, started to do some research. And I found that more CEOs, maybe the year after me too happened, were removed for sexual harassment and personal misconduct than they were for failing to meet like financial targets. It was like, okay, that's also pretty interesting. Like, even if you don't care about these sorts of issues. Now, from a dollars and cents perspective, like there's a real business argument to be made that companies that have fewer of these issues um, are just like better positioned. I care about these issues and want the workplaces to be better, but I just sort of recognize that like not everybody is on that uh, journey with me. And so uh, making sure that there's a business case was important. And so I went to a senior partner at McKinsey um and he was in the insurance practice And I was like, Hey, I've like kind of got this idea, uh, about how you can make training more effective. I had been on this, um, project where one little task I had was to send emails to everybody, um, in this project. And I got really competitive about my emails, having the best open rate. I wanted um, to show that if you did like (laughs) (laughs) clever subject lines, you could just get more people to engage. And, you know, I, I did, and, um, I beat the other person, whatever, so I was like, I just kind of got this idea for like how to make training kind of like that, like something that people actually want to engage with. And the insurance partner was like, yeah, you should definitely do that because he had seen how the cybersecurity insurance market had really changed once there was effective versus check the box training. And kind of going back to the point about like the importance of believing in yourself and um, that, you know, for for women entering business, um, I think it was really important for me that he was like, all angel invest." It was like, oh, that's interesting. Like you who know a lot about this general space, like see me as someone you'd put money behind, you'd bet on. And I think that, you know, it was a small interaction, probably took 15 minutes total. But I think it really gave me a lot of confidence that like, hey, my idea is not, you know, dumb and like I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like one of those small, but really meaningful interactions that happen.
1: So he was your first to actually invest in Athena?
0: Yeah, he was probably like in the first four checks. Like he, yeah. you know, he said it at the time. And I was like, I wonder if he's just kind of like saying it. And then I came to collect. I was like, so how about that check? And he wrote it like, yeah, one of the first yeah. checks in.
1: So funding a company, especially for female entrepreneurs, can be super tricky, not impossible. Yeah. But I'd love to hear your experience and how you funded Athena to date.
0: Yeah, so we've, I think, raised about four rounds of capital, $50 million, um total which yeah, you're exactly right. Like, is sadly not a very common um, experience for women, in particular teams that look like mine. So my co-founder is also a woman, and teams that look like ours get like somewhere between two and three percent of all venture capital, which is um, a stat we've been talking about for a long time. It hasn't changed. Um, I know you had Malin, um, Yen on, yeah. on the podcast, and like I think Operator Collective and groups like that are doing you know January Ventures. There's a bunch of different um, organizations that are trying to move the needle, but man. It is still stuck exactly where it was five years ago. Yeah. And so, like, we did it through raising venture capital from kind of um, traditional places you would go. We have incredible angel investors all the way through um, like larger VCs. And I think that something I got better at as I went on was um, telling the story and the vision. I did this TechCrunch Live uh, thing with Hunter Walk because he initially passed and then regretted his decision and kept buying up. And he said that when he first talked to me, I kind of like just pitched the business, not this like big vision. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of a something that like women tend to be socialized to do is like, don't be bombastic and, you know, don't like shoot for the moon. Just kind of be like really good operators and, and very like show your scoreboard. And I was sort of doing that in the early days and learned that that's not how my male peers in general were pitching. They were pitching, we're going to change the world and then it'd be like, how? Some specific B2B SaaS thing. And you're like, oh, you're telling like this Amazon story for like something that my business could be too. I just, it took me a while to get comfortable saying like, look, in 10 years, like this is what we're going to do. Yeah. We've only done two years of that, but like, you know, you gotta, you gotta dream with me.
1: So interesting. So what is the, your competition like out there and and how do you think about competition?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very established space. So like compliance training, like came up with all of um, sort of like corporate bad behavior. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely like a very established space. Law firms do it. Consulting um, firms do it. There's a bunch of like established players. Some, um, that started some more recently, like it, you know, we very much, um, are in a rip and replace legacy space early. What we kind of, we just looked so different from anything that was out there. Even, uh, we would say like, you know, if you're going to check a box, don't you want to get something out of it? And people were like, Oh, I never really thought you could get anything out of this. And it's like, yeah, like if we're going to have the whole organization sit down for two hours a year, like. You're telling me you don't want that to be impactful. And people are like, no, I, I do. I just like literally never thought that that's, that's what I could get out of compliance training. And it really took like seeing um, our some of our early customers. So we had amazing companies like Netflix and Zendesk and these like really innovative early adopters. And when I would talk to prospective buyers at companies like that, their eyes would light up and they'd be like, I thought someone was gonna make this company like five years ago, you know? And I just like never saw it in the market. And so it sort of felt like, they, they were kind of rooting for us and cheering us on. And so when I think about the competitive landscape, not in a, in a cocky way, but I just think like we're doing something really different. Like we set out from day zero to make this, um, about an impactful, like employee first experience and everything we built in our DNA is around that versus what the field had traditionally been. Um, and so we just like feel really confident and kind of I don't know, it's like everyone else went left and we're like, we're going to go right. Um, And and that, that just like feels right. Let's talk about growth. You probably started your business because you saw an opportunity in the market. And now, well, there might be an opportunity for even more growth. You wanted to be CEO, not the tech support or receptionist, and especially not the person your customers reach out to. That's not great for them. It's not great for you. And it's definitely not great for growth. We're 24/7 in touch. We'll focus on your customer experience so you can focus on growth. We'll help optimize the business so you can grow the business. We'll develop tailored solutions that deliver strong and consistent performances that will take your business to the next level. We partner with leading global brands and we'd love to partner with you too. Visit letstalkintouch.com to learn more.
1: Obviously, you guys are the underdogs out there, as you said, you know, it's it's a pretty established industry. And I've always believed that in every industry, there's an opportunity to disrupt totally. and change and think about things differently. And especially when... Uh, compliance is so important to companies that maybe people who are getting hired by these companies think we don't need to change, right? We just yeah, you know, and you guys are really doing things differently and and kind of shaking things up in in a very good way. So I think it's super super great what you have come up with and the courage to to do it as well. What are some of the big surprising things that you've seen in terms of like what's needed by companies? Like what are the the hot issues that are out there that you feel like are really kind of painful for people still right now?
0: They have so many pain points. It was kind of like when we, when Anne and I started the company, we were aware of kind of the employee pain point. Mm-hmm. So employees hate it. What we didn't understand is like why that mattered. So one of the big pain points that, that we consistently see is um, like a pain point I participated in as an employee employees don't do their training because so they don't want to do it because they think it's dumb. They think it's not relevant and they're not wrong. Like often it is irrelevant to what they do. It's really long. Um, it's like often longer than what they need. So one big pain point we just see is that HR or legal teams, people teams kind of has to act like bounty hunters at the end of the year going around and being like, do you do your training? Like Jim, like, I know you're behind, like, you know, what's your deal? Like go do your, do your training. Um, this is like one that kind of blows my mind, but, um, the tech is often so bad that then Jim will be like, I did it, but it crashed at like minute 55. And then I don't know, man, like interesting. uh, Yeah. And you're like, wow, like my, my co-founder of CTO, you know, that was really surprising kind of going maybe like one level up, something we really see from companies. Again, we train these like incredible, innovative Companies, both um, public tech companies and then kind of the next gen of great companies like Figma and Notion. So we see that there are a bunch of reasons why it really matters now to be an ethical and inclusive company that, you know, five, 10 years ago didn't. And so we'll hear things like, hey, I'm presenting to our board about kind of like ESG related things. So, you know, we kind of fall under the social part. Like our board is asking, like, what are we doing to be um, more inclusive? What are we doing to be ethical? And I don't have a lot of like metrics to show the board what we're doing. And so we found that um, our the way we train is like overtime, short, digestible bits. So we, if we're training you, might have like, you know, say five interactions throughout the year. And so that's a bunch of little opportunities to get data from you on like, do you think your company acts in an ethical way? Has that changed since you got a new manager? Do you know how to report an issue? Do you know your dating policy? Like all of these questions that we can actually show a pretty interesting picture to our admins that they can then show... To, for example, like um, their board or a regulator, about, hey, like when we first started a year ago, only 65% of people were comfortable raising an issue to management. And we've now increased that by like 15, 20 percentage points. And so I'm finding that space super interesting. And, and um, you've seen this in, in running a company for a while, but like there's just a lot more expectations of companies to do the right thing. And there's a lot more touch points where either regulators, or just like shareholders or even employees are kind of saying like, hey, what's going on here? Like, you know, there, there's all of these um, requests for ethics and inclusion being a key part of a company that just don't feel like 10 years ago that was sort of um, front and center.
1: What about managers that are women versus men or or diversity, too? I mean, do you when you look at some of those issues, do you see that there's like definitely a difference? I'm going to try to remember which direction it went, but it was, there was some regulator
0: who said, maybe it was like the EEOC or I, I can try to find it after, but they said something like if um, there's sexual harassment happening at a company, they kind of assume that there are other areas of misconduct that are happening at a company as well, like financial, you know, or things like that. And I thought that was a really interesting connection because it's sort of like, regardless of the space, like if you're kind of doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing in a bunch of, like, it's like the, how you do anything is how you do everything. And so I certainly anecdotally see that companies that, for example, like prioritize inclusion in all of its forms, I can just kind of tell, like you tell and who you talk to at the company and you, you can tell them like how they've talked to each other and uh, this kind of mutual respect. I can just kind of tell if like employees are empowered at that company, even by like, you know, how the purchasing process works and, and all of that. I can also see it in, um, think that the role of what was traditionally called HR and now, you know, um, often people operations, like how important that person is at a company, you can kind of see that and you can, you can sort of infer, like, is it um, we value employee experience in kind of name only and like for marketing purposes, or is it like, oh no, really like your people teams are like deeply engaged. They're considered a key part of the business, or is it kind of this, like their back office? And so I've just like sort of picked up on little um, trends like that. I'd say in general, it's not surprising that um, the early adopters of our approach were like super culture forward companies. I remember one early buyer said, I literally haven't been doing this training because I find the traditional options so insulting to my team that I would rather be like, quote, out of compliance than put like garbage in front of them. I was like, man, that's that's like, you know, an innovative um, person right there. So, yeah, I we definitely tend to see a more innovative, like really forward looking, uh, wanting to invest in these types of things, especially in our early years.
1: My guess is, is that compliance needs to start sooner rather than later. But if you're thinking about like, do I need compliance? I mean, how big do you need to be like? Is there a is there a general guide for people that they should start doing like even the beginnings of compliance?
0: Totally. I mean, I think like it's hard because compliance like needs a rebrand. It's such a boring word that I think yeah. anyone who's building a business is, is like, I don't need compliance. I need to just like get my business off the ground, which I totally understand. But um, yeah, I mean, the regulations in New York, for example, one or more employee you're required to train on sexual harassment annually. Um, California, I think it's five um, employees or more. Chicago, like one or more. So you know, essentially, like if you have a business, there are some obligations you kind of already have um, for. A compliance training. And then regardless of whether you have them, it's just considered a best practice to be doing these, these types of things. And they're sort of both like uh, kind of legal reasons. And then again, also just like um, what you said is totally true. Like if you instill these uh, topics really early, it's much easier than trying to like turn a um, aircraft carrier. We have Francis Fry, um, who's a Harvard Business School professor as an early advisor. And she, I kind of view her as like it's usually a company, a uh, person that companies who are trying to write things after they're quite large call. And yeah, she absolutely says like, if you build this in from the early days, it's just a lot easier. And that doesn't mean that um, as a company, you're never going to have um, issues. I wrote about, um, I wrote an op-ed, I think for a tech crunch about like my company will have harassment issues. Like everyone, um, any company of any size will have all sorts of um, issues over the course of their existence, because you put people together and like things will happen. And so it's really important to, instead of kind of having this like zero defect or ostrich mentality of like, okay, there's nothing bad is ever going to happen at my company 15 years. We're in existence. Um, instead having a very proactive, like it is about, um, when not if, and therefore I need to train everybody to recognize when, you know, someone makes a joke that they thought was funny, but the impact it had on a colleague was, actually pretty detrimental and like how do we navigate this situation or someone makes an angel investment and they don't understand that actually it's pretty important to share that with your legal team because you know your company is considering going public in the next couple of years and like um like all of these kind of things that feel very gray area um just just raising an awareness about like hey you've got people on your team who you can go to to ask these questions is like really helpful to do kind of from day 1 versus doing it in a really like reactive knee jerk sort of way
1: What's been the toughest thing for you about starting your own company? Maybe something that you didn't expect, maybe some challenge that has come yeah. up along the way, but what's been really the hardest piece?
0: I think the hardest piece is like, um, and I don't know if you have this, but just like putting it away. Like it is, I'm so emotionally connected to it. The company's three years old. My kid just turned two. So like basically was pregnant with him, you know, in the earliest days. And I really view this company as, like, a, my baby. Like, it's just something I poured, like, my whole heart into. And so what can be really hard about that is, like, just putting it away, you know, and saying, like, okay, the day is done, my work is done, and, like, I'm, I'm going to step away for a little yeah. bit and not ride the highs and not ride the lows. Um, and it's, like, certainly something I've been working on getting better at. I, I reach out to other CEOs for um for, like, advice on this. But I think that just feels like kind of the weirdly the hardest part because it's more of like a fuzzy emotional thing, but you know, we're people with fuzzy emotions.
1: I think that that's a really, really valid point because I think people just don't really realize how many hours. And typically there are way easier ways, as I always say, to make money, that it's just, it's a lot of hard work. It's a passion, um, but it's also that, you know, you've got the vision, right? To actually figure out how to move forward and and uh, you've got to be leading the team and leading the efforts. And I think it's great that you have a co-founder yeah. uh, as well, because I think Huge. that when you're an individual, a single founder, that's that's really, really tough. Uh, uh, I would find it so hard.
0: Yeah. Like leading on her, on my team. Yeah.
1: It's super, super important. So last question, what's the best advice that you ever received, either from another entrepreneur or leader? I mean, you've had such amazing experience. I would love to hear. Yeah. You know, is there one thing that you think back on, on those like challenging days that help you move forward? Yeah, I think probably it's about like
0: leadership. And I got it in my early days in the um, army. I was a cadet and uh, this officer who I looked up to and um, was just kind of like asking him like, how do you be a good leader? Which just, you know, sort of a huge question. But um, he said, uh, leaders just give a shit, which I think is actually like really good advice, um, you know, and I... Um, I'll like sometimes reframe that to like leaders care, but I find that really nice because sometimes like maybe, you know, we're having some sort of problem and I'm like, not sure how to navigate it. And then just kind of remembering that like being a good leader is just like that, that I, um, as long as I really care about the people who I have the privilege of leading, like I'll get to the right answer. And instead of feeling like, Oh, I don't, I don't know what it is. And there's five different options. And, like, how am I going to figure it out? Just kind of having that North Star of like, if I care, which is very different than like coddling, you know, that's not saying like, you Mm -hmm. ever want to pass and you just like be a cheerleader. Like caring is I think really about like holding people accountable, really being really clear about standards and believing that they can be excellent and like believing that for them and wanting that for them and holding them accountable to it. But I find that kind of nice because it's just like a sort of simple North Star that is not complicated, but is like hard to operationalize.
1: Really, really great last moments of advice. So, thank yeah. you so much, Roxanne. I'm really, really excited for everyone to hear this episode. And thank you for all the insights and more than anything, motivation. Hopefully, you're helping people to know that they can go and start big things. And, you know, uh-huh. they didn't have to think that they were going to be an entrepreneur from day one. They can go disrupt industries that are very established. Yeah. And they can also be in the military as a woman in combat and do all kinds of amazing things for their country as well. So thank you for all of that. Oh, you bet.